Chapter 6 of Seeing Darkly This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Seeing Darkly by the Rev. John Sparhawk Jones Chapter 6 The Value of the Soul Quote, Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth, and one convert him, let him know that he which converteth the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death, and shall hide a multitude of sins. Unquote. James, chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. Two men named James are mentioned in the New Testament, one the son of Zebedee and brother of John, beheaded by Herod Agrippa, a record of which is found in the book of the Acts. The other, also one of the original twelve, and surnamed the Less, either from his stature or from his age, is called by Apostle Paul the Lord's brother. His language is, quote, After three years I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter, and abode with him fifteen days. But other of the apostles saw I none, save James the Lord's brother, unquote, a kinsman of some degree. It was probably he who wrote this practical treatise to the dispersed Jewish Christians living outside of Palestine, the first of the seven so-called Catholic epistles, because addressed to no particular church, but to the whole body of Christian believers. In any case, he who thus wrote of faith and works to the scattered Christians was a pillar in the young church. Paul found him in charge at Jerusalem on arriving there. He also presided over the first church council with fine wisdom and moderation, and among other services sent forth this tract upon the practical side of religion to the various Christian societies of that age. The tone of his epistle is not distinctly doctrinal. It refers rather to the visible effects of religious principle in the disposition and life of men. He tells his readers what they must do, and not so much what God does for them. He lays accent upon personal accountability and effort, and does not discuss at length the theoretic and reasoned parts of religion. The text which closes his epistle furnishes an admirable sample and summation of his method. Observe there is no reference to supernaturalism or mystery. He does not mention the Holy Ghost. He does not expound the new birth. He looks at the transaction upon the human side, as if it were a service, favor, or accommodation which one could grant another to convert him. Unquestionably there is a permissible sense in which this is true, and by consulting that sense, or acceptation, James shows the eminently practical cast of his mind. Consider first this fact which the Apostle calls error, or aberration, and wandering from the truth. It may be of two kinds, speculative and doctrinal, or overt, public, and notorious in matters of conduct and decorum. There are intellectual errors, and there are open faults and sins, and the one does not necessarily involve the other. This is a sphere where there are wheels within wheels. Error may be of all grades and kinds, from that which eats into the core and is critical and dangerous, to that which is superficial and comparatively indifferent. There is a vast amount of error in the world that is practically harmless. It exists in relation to all subject matters. It cannot be otherwise in the present state of man's faculties. More than this, it is one of the proofs of God's goodness to our race that the consequences of necessary, invincible ignorance are not always visited upon us in a painful way, and unless this be important in order to secure and protect the larger interests of mankind. 
Take as illustration the infancy of any art or science in which errors must abound. Absurd theories and bungling experiments and diverse misconceptions arise before the true idea and shortest cut are discovered. Meanwhile, no one is seriously damaged or delayed by his ignorance and awkwardness. It did not interfere with the happiness of mankind before Kepler and Copernicus to believe that the earth was a flat plane, and the sky glass, and the stars spangles, and the antipodes an impossible thought, an inconceivable thing. Men and women lived happily under the reign of doctrines in geography and astronomy since exploded. So likewise in every branch of knowledge. At first man's efforts are rude and tentative, wild and wide of the mark, but as time rolls in fresh informations this and that is rejected and excluded and replaced by surer methods and truer interpretations. And all the while that men are guessing and blundering and floundering and coming to port gradually, they are ordinarily spared any deplorable, mischievous effects of invincible ignorance. They must err. It is the state of man. He is a trier of conclusions, an explorer, an experimenter, a moral navigator over misty seas into unknown lands. And only in relation to matters where it is absolutely essential that he be right at once and from the start does he receive sharp, instant notification of the fact. For all other knowledge, he waits. If he walk on live coals, he is burnt instantaneously and without mercy, for the simple reason that if the whole race were to take to that occupation, it would be annihilated. If he pass the hand even inadvertently over a cutting edge, it draws blood. If he take poison in sufficient quantity, he dies. It is necessary for the sake of the species that swift, sure, and painful consequences should follow directly and inexorably upon certain acts and omissions, even although they be done in ignorance and by accident. The universal interests of man demand that one and another here and there shall suffer as a monumental example lest the entire race perish through rashness and imprudence. Nature is sometimes a Caiaphas, and says it is expedient that one man should die for the people, and that the whole nation perish not. But ruling out this class of exceptions, God allows error, dense, opaque, stupid, slow-paced error, to take possession of the human mind and only gradually to settle as sediment at the bottom. Moreover, what is true in the sphere of natural knowledge is also true in respect of religious doctrines and ideas. Here, too, there is a wide margin open to innocent and venial error, and such as the moral instinct cannot persuade itself to be highly blameworthy. Thus men may differ touching certain speculative positions in theology without incurring, so far as is revealed, awful peril or immedicable hurt. They may differ as to the apostolic constitution of the church. Was it prelacy or presbytery? Should the church be governed by bishops or by elders? They may differ as to the philosophy and range of the atonement. Was it designed equally for all or specifically for some? And how does it operate to pardon human sin? They may differ in regard to the mode in which man became a sinner. Was it by direct imputation of Adam's sin to his posterity, or by way of natural law and natural consequence? They may differ as to the interpretation of 1 Peter 3.19, and as to what really happened during the interim between the death and resurrection of Jesus. Did he actually preach to spirits in Hades, the dead of the pre-Christian ages? Did he publish the gospel of redemption through the dark and spectral kingdom of departed spirits, and carry salvation to imprisoned souls? So, too, in regard to the whole question of restitution, shall all souls be ultimately restored, or shall some prove incurable and incorrigible, and perish? 
Just as in the previous case of natural knowledge, so here there must be error, taking man as he is, with his limitations, his ignorance, and prejudice. Probably James did not contemplate intellectual or theoretic opinion or doctrinal heresy at all in urging the conversion of sinners. It is perfectly true that doctrine lies at the base of practice, in a general way, and yet one may hold error upon a speculative point, where the light of heaven does not shine full and clear, and where much remains to be said upon both sides, without involving any serious defection in the region of conduct, without lowering the moral tone or implying any desperate hostility to God and goodness. It is rather at the critical point where loose and corrupt doctrine empties, debouches into corresponding evil practice, that the text grapples. Where any one's doctrinal fallacy finds its way into the sphere of action and habitually taints and poisons that, then in an eminent sense he becomes a sinner. Or apart from this, and without any doctrinal theology, one may sin, one may err from the truth, carried along by the force of undisciplined passions, or again one may hold sound opinions without the moral will to give them systematic effect, so that in practice his conduct discredits his ossified orthodoxy. This is by no means uncommon. The picture in the text is presumably that of a person who from any cause has wandered from the path of order and rectitude, and from the ideal of the gospel. Because there is a definite style of life, a set or ply of the disposition, a certain viewpoint, a general spirit and broad drift characteristic of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that is perfectly distinct and unmistakable, so that it is not difficult to see or to say whether one errs from it. It is not so much a question of intellectual heresy that is here mooted, or some high theme of metaphysical theology which men have not sufficient data to settle dogmatically yet a while, but the picture is that of one who knows more of the truth than he tries to do, who goes astray from it, who leads a poor, mean, shambling, guilty life and is in danger of making shipwreck of himself and of being swamped and stranded, from whatever cause. And the Apostle James says, if you can help such, can influence him, can draw him out of the vortex and whirlpool, it may be the saving of a soul from death. Consider further that the text credits men with a singular power of converting others. This is not the usual way of conceiving the matter. The general impression, supported by biblical sanction, is that the soul of man must be turned and tuned and made responsive and melodious under the touch of almighty power. The hearts of men are in the hands of God. Of course, this is the final fact about it, and the last analysis of the matter, but meanwhile divine and human agency are often interactive, so that the inception of religion in the soul may not infrequently be traced to some action, word, incident, or circumstance lying open to view. Now James, with his genius for the palpable and practical, lays hold of the proximate cause, the occasional cause which may originate a Christian experience and lifts that into prominence. Hence he speaks of converting sinners as though it were a perfectly feasible thing. He looks upon the phenomenon from the lower, natural side of secondary causes, and in that view his phrase is undoubtedly justifiable. It is certainly true that one may be the instrument by whom the whole spirit and total tendency of a fellow being shall be reversed and revolutionized. This is a splendid possibility. You may convert a sinner from the error of his way. The Spirit of God may take a man into temporary partnership with himself and allow him to cooperate in an effectual manner and toward permanent and blessed results. There is such a power as personal influence, a dark, secret, inscrutable thing. How, 
when or where it may operate or whom it may affect is not matter for prediction. Only this is known, that there is power lodged in sincerity, in moral courage, in moral convictions, in personal example, in persuasion. One needs to handle these things skillfully, for they are delicate, keen-edged tools, and one requires fine wisdom and manifest sincerity to wield them. But there can be no question that many a human being has been deeply and permanently influenced by the spirit, example, companionship, and by the word in season of someone who lived for finer issues and on a higher plane. No one knows when he does incalculable good or harm. This is a great mystery. Out of some little act or omission immeasurable consequences may proceed. Your high courage, your unselfishness, at a critical moment may fling a splendid energy into others. Your word of interest or remonstrance with a blotched, ulcerated bondslave of evil habit may win him to decency and honor. Your silent and steady example may operate powerfully upon those who witness it. Your mere inquiry of one whether he be an attendant upon church service may bring him into wholesome and helpful surroundings. A judiciously phrased opinion concerning the inevitable tendency of a person's course may turn him from the rocks upon which his craft is heading, and where he will shortly strike and go down. You may speak a timely word that shall put one upon thinking about his case, and which shall issue in the passing away of old things, and the incoming of a new dynasty of motives and principles. True, it is quite possible to cast one's pearls before swine. An earnest, sincere soul may do harm by intemperate and indiscreet action. Nothing can take the place of common sense, tact, judgment, a knowledge of men, times, seasons, and proprieties. But with this keen instinct, one may do good, may impart a true impulse, may plant a counsel or suggestion that shall swell, germinate, fructify like a seed. Quote, a handful of corn may wave like Lebanon, unquote. Verily, a great practical truth is this of St. James, that a man may cooperate with God, and that not necessarily with bluster and flourish of trumpets, hunting for a choice spot to set his lever, seeking for a large, conspicuous place as the seat of his operations, and whence he can make elaborate attempts, but simply by the wise use of casual, unexpected, wayside opportunities, we may be co-workers with God. No one can say when he shall strike his sturdiest strokes. No one can say what God may wing like an arrow to its mark, and what shall fall short and flat. The main point is sincerity, earnestness. Do not vex your soul about results. Do not draw up programs. Seize and use the opportunity as it comes. Another remark opened by the text amounts to this, that the work of moral influence is far grander than we suspect. Whoever succeeds on this high field saves a soul from death. Here is a powerful argument, yet one we cannot properly appraise. For what is the soul? Is the soul of man matter raised to its highest power and destined to relapse again into dust? Or is it a unique, supernatural somewhat, an immortal property or entity, sojourning here for a season and hence emigrating into other latitudes to clothe itself afresh with an organism better suited to the new climate and surroundings? We cannot define the human spirit. We only know it is that within each one which authorizes him to say, I. Man alone can say, I. He has self-consciousness, personal identity, the faculty of comparison and inference, conscience, and a rational will. He can say, I, I will, I choose, I think, I am. 
This is his strange prerogative. Brutes cannot rise above the course of nature, but man can. He can take possession of nature and utilize it. Planted in nature, so far as concerns the body, by the force of intelligence, self-determination, and rational motives, he may rise above the nature realm of physics, and direct and control it in his own interest and for his own ends. This spiritual energy, this outfit of mental and moral faculty, this principle of eternity is the inbreathing of the Almighty, and is compendiously called the soul. It is a depth that no lead and line has yet sounded. Men have sounded the sea and measured the velocity of light and the diameter of the earth. They can calculate the orbit of comets and weigh the stars, but they have not guessed the secret of man's soul. They think it's Shekinah or center somewhere in the brain and nervous system, but they have not found it yet. It eludes all research. There is a gulf between the brain and the thinker, across which no bridge has been flung so that one may cross from the one to the other. The physics of thought is inscrutable. We only know certain of the goings forth, exercises, and attributes of the soul. It is a sort of bird of paradise, of splendid plumage but caged, wired and barred by mortality, and that throbs and flutters and hopes and wonders and rejoices. The Bible does not define the human soul. It simply looks upon man as a creature capable of a career. It looks upon human possibility as a wondrous seed that has life in itself, a thing of tremendous vitality, a rough, encrusted diamond that may be cleansed and polished and set to flash forever in the heavens. It looks upon the imperial endowments of man, his insatiable cravings and unquenchable aspirations and all that is as yet potential and small as capable of fulfillment, of larger life, as being shackled now but one day to be enfranchised and let soar and roam. The Christian religion deals in grand ideas, too grand for our present limitations, Tourists who climb to the summit of the Alps, toiling through the thin air, sometimes sink on the snow and stare in silence at the white peaks and domes and the sea of clouds stretching to the horizon. And is there no majesty in the gospel, too? No Mont Blanc, no Matterhorn, no Mont Rosa, no long ranges, no lofty summits, no shining pinnacles? Can you take in these Christian ideas any better than the stately panoramas of the natural world? Can you define the soul and immortality? Can you tell what it means to save a soul from death? What is the death of the soul? Is it extinction? The suspension of consciousness and all mental activity? The going out of conscious life as a candle flickers and dies in the socket? Is it a perpetual swoon and torpor of the faculties? Or is it an ever-during life at a low pulse in a morally debilitated and corrupt condition, in a dark, indurated, obstinate, incurable opposition to God and goodness? What is the death of a soul? Who shall expound such a mystery? Who can venture upon more than his own private interpretation? Who knows enough to affirm dogmatically concerning such a catastrophe? Verily, one would need to take the wings of the morning and fly through eternity in search of materials to elucidate so dark a theme as this. Even an inspired apostle does not define or describe or dilate. He simply throws out the idea as a vivid, lurid reality. <laughs> a dead soul, a lost soul. Without expounding, he simply leaves it floating before the imagination of vague, nameless horror. And probably in this he sets a wise example. It is sufficient for us to know that a man may lose his career, his destiny, and fail of his chief end. The subject does not call for minute particulars. 
that the human spirit may fail of achieving its true purpose and fall short of the mark, that the powers of mind and affection and all that fits it to expatiate in the upper firmament of God's love and to discover the secrets of the universe, and to enter upon the companionships of an immortal world may be balked and frustrated and fall down into a deep of darkness and confusion, and become a byword and a hissing, a thing of shame and contempt, surely this is bad enough. There is no need to pile up a massive, apocalyptic imagery to describe so dismal a catastrophe as the death of a soul. Just let it stand as James states it. That will do. That is enough. To attempt more, we should have to draw upon our imagination, in default of facts and of actual knowledge, whereas the Bible simply authorizes this solemn truth, that a soul may utterly, ignominiously fail of its supreme end and proper destiny, and become a wrecked and ruined creature. Surely the ideas connected with religion transcend all others in mysteriousness and sublimity. You may say you do not believe them, but that is a separate matter. Here they are, clear-cut definite, intelligible, coherent, the throne of God, the soul of man, a life that never dies, moral ruin, an eternal progress in the elements of knowledge, holiness, power, joy, the necessity of divine approbation and of divine help, these are a few of the items that make up religion, and where will you match them for magnitude and grandeur? They dwarf all secular interests. Moreover, this is the strength of the Apostle's argument, that one should exert whatever moral influence he possesses on behalf of men, inasmuch as it is possible he may save a soul from death. He may set some stumbling, shambling foot on a path that shall wax wider and brighter until it lose itself in an eternal day. Is this not a great work? Think of it. One prodigal reclaimed, one frivolous, reckless creature arrested and impressed and made to feel that it is not the whole of life to live. Is this not the highest style of success, to save a soul from death? To meet again even one amid the countless nations of the saved, who shall rise up to call you blessed, who shall say, You led me to eternal life. Would that not be an immense, unspeakable thing to befall you or me? Can you conceive of a greater ovation? Hence I emphasize the power of moral influence as the most remunerative power we have. After all, the best service you can render anyone is not to make him rich or famous or even learned, but to instruct and stimulate his rational and religious nature. For this, if at all he is to be saved, this is the salvable part of him. The rest is comparative rubbish. So that if they who come into contact with you somehow receive the impression that you believe in God, in duty, in redemption, in purity, in prayer, in moral accountability, in judgment to come, if these ideas shine through your life and make themselves felt, no one may calculate, arithmetic has no logarithms to compute, the possible results of such an influence. It is tidal. It may heave and break upon a hundred shores. It may bless souls who know nothing of its origin and impulse. People are apt to belittle this mystery of moral influence. Nevertheless, it is one of the grand, silent, effectual forces that bear upon the education of the human spirit. If you have accomplished no more than winning a profane swearer from his oaths, or a drunkard from his wine cups, if you have mellowed the prejudices of a strong, implacable hater, or refined a coarse, sensual, sullen nature, if you have made any slight impression upon a strongly entrenched vice or mean disposition, if by the subtle contagion of your better example, or by a golden word at a fit time, anyone to whom you have access has had the eyes of the mind opened 
and been beckoned forward to higher thinking and nobler living, such an exploit takes rank with the capture of a city or the discovery of a continent. Columbus really did not do any greater deed than that, measured by the standards that prevail in the kingdom of the heavens. And while selfish and sensual men may imagine that praying and preaching is a small business, Christianity makes it the chief part of its errand to affirm that such attempts upon man's spiritual nature are infinitely more significant than the din of the street and the agitations of the caucus and the noisy clatter of this mechanical world, and that if it were not for man's religious potentialities, his capacity to know and enjoy God and to come into practical sympathy with him, it would not have been worthwhile to carpet a globe like this, arrange its sceneries, and hang its starlights, and marshal its epochs, and ordain its seasons, and kindle sun and moon to give it light, and bid its centuries file past crowded with wars, migrations, tumults, civilizations, creeds, and a ceaseless flux of changes, simply to afford a soulless monkey a chance to play his fantastic tricks. Hence it follows that whatsoever bears upon man's moral life is highly significant. Any impulse or motive drawn from a supernal sphere and applicable to human condition is always in order. If the Christian ideal be not true, it does not much matter how we live or what becomes of us. But if Jesus Christ be indeed the bearer of an authentic message from the unseen to our mortal race, then it follows that man does not live by bread alone, by his animal nature, by his worldly ambitions, by pride, by selfishness, by sensations, but that the imperial endowment about him is the spiritual life, the moral sentiment and presentiment, and his inborn affinity with an order of facts and realities that lie beyond sense, which he cannot strictly verify, but of which he feels the pull and has a divination. If you can do anything to vivify this, if you can fan this spark and make it flame, if you can deepen this suspicion, if you can cause any one to feel that he is a son of God, although a prodigal son, that he is a crown prince in tatters, that he is a child at school far from his father's house getting his tuition, if you can cause anyone to live under the dominion of such great convictions, this will be the finest stroke you can do. You need not envy Alexander or Napoleon. You need not care to sit down with kings under canopies and diadems. It will be enough to save a soul from death. But mark this caveat, in order to do that, it is important that one feel the power of the truth he commends to others. It should command the homage of his own nature. Paul seems to teach that God may use a man for what he is worth, without his being worth much after all. My converts, he says, may enter into life, while I may be a castaway. You can be useful, in a way, without deep convictions. Strange to say, one may be the instrument of the moral recovery of another without thereby certifying to his own sincerity or genuineness. Let us look well to ourselves. Let us light a candle and search ourselves. Every one of us must give account of himself unto God. End of chapter 6